that's gotten worse day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. Donald Trump is a threat to this country. It is the week of January 11th, and welcome to episode 60 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council. Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So we discussed uh, last week the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Since then, uh, two Capitol Hill police officers have died. Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats have begun a second impeachment process for President Trump. Republicans are all over the place. Social media companies have banned President Trump from their platforms. And foreign countries, particularly China and Iran, appear to be taking advantage. Jody, um, you weren't on the show last week. You're on the show this week. You spent a good portion of your career on the Hill, uh, like some of the rest of us. I want to get your uh, your thoughts and impressions on what happened last week. Yeah, so I, I think I'm still traumatized, right? I, I spent most of my career in the House and the Senate, and I, like all of you, have friends that work there. I still uh, I have former bosses, Senators Menendez uh, and Cardin, who were, who were targets, uh, like every other member of Congress, of this attack. Uh, that photo uh, at the doors of the House, right, with the Capitol Police, with the guns drawn, um, the same door that the president uses to enter the chamber for the State of the Union address is like just like constantly stuck uh, in my head. And I think it's because when you when you work there, you understand that it's really like an honor to go into those chambers. And there's a decorum that people who don't work on the Hill, like maybe don't see, but there's a decorum that's demanded and that people respect when they work there, right? If you walk into the Senate chamber, you don't even sit in senators' chairs, right? Uh, because you're not an elected senator. The floor staff will bring you a separate seat to staff your boss when uh, when you're on the Senate floor, um, because even staff who work there aren't allowed to sit in those chairs, right? So to see the to see you know people from the public walk into that chamber, not paying it uh, not paying it respect, it, it like desecrate. It makes me really um, it makes it really very very sad. And at the same time, you know, Trump if you have to look at this and say Trump Trump asked for this, he demanded it of the people around him, uh, and people who could have deterred deterred him didn't right. They didn't deter him from his rhetoric or from the lies um, that he was spewing. So. Um, I will leave it with this, though. Like, I'm not surprised that both chambers reconvened that evening. I frankly would have expected nothing less. I was surprised uh, that the votes didn't move much, right? The votes um, against certification were barely moved um, by the day's events. And over the weekend, I've kind of gone back and forth on on, on impeachment, not over the legality of it, but, but the merits of it. Come to this conclusion, which is I think it can be done in a bipartisan manner, it would really help to banish the Trump movement to the trash bin of history. Um, and that's uh, that's my hope. But I hope it, it can be done quickly and I hope it can be done really in a bipartisan manner because I think it's important that we speak with one voice on what happened last week. You know, Jody, I'll, let me let me push back a little bit on what you said and say that it's my impression the votes cha- did change in the Senate. You know, we were originally thinking 12 or 13 Republicans were going to oppose 
democracy. It ended up being, uh, I think, about six. The House vote didn't seem to change much. Uh, and unfortunately, right. leadership there supported uh, a vote against the democratic process, which I, I just don't understand. Uh, but votes did change in the Senate. Having worked in both places, any any reflection on why the, the differentiation there? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the vote changed in the Senate uh, a little bit. I mean, we stick with the Senate's a more deliberative body. People, senators have more political space uh, than House members have, partially because of the, the duration of their tenures, you know, six years versus two. But they're also you know, have a wider mandate from their state, right? Like there are Republicans and Democrats in every single state in this country, right? Whereas if you represent a single congressional district, you may have an overwhelmingly uh, an overwhelming Republican district, maybe an overwhelmingly, I hate to say Republican, maybe an overwhelmingly Trump district um, in a way that no senator has, right? Every senator has a political diversity within their state. So, Jamil, Republicans are all over the place reacting to the insurrection. Uh, a very few are supporting impeachment. Uh, a few more are supporting resignation or the 25th Amendment process for removing the president from office. Uh, others, a lot more Republicans think that Trump should just be allowed to leave quietly, not that he would leave quietly, on January 20th, the regularly scheduled end of his term. What's your take so far on the Republican response? Well, I mean, the Republican response has had the same problem that the entire Republican response to Donald Trump has been, which is, oh, if we just ignore it long enough or pretend like it's not a problem, it'll just go away. And the fact of the matter is it's gotten worse day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. Donald Trump is a threat to this country. He's a threat to the Republican Party. He's been a disaster as a president. Yes, has he done a couple of good things here and there? Some good Supreme Court nominations, of course. Some strong policies in, in, in the international realm. Absolutely. Does that make him a good president? No. When you call for an insurrection against the United States from the Oval Office, you are not a good American president. You're not a good Republican. Ronald Reagan would be appalled. That man wouldn't take his jacket off in the Oval Office and, and, and Donald Trump had the audacity to call for an insurrection from the Oval Office. That's nonsense. Every Republican leader should stand up and say that. And if they don't have the guts to do it, they should, they should be able to vote it out. What's, the, what's, your, what's your modality? What do you think is the best mechanism for removal? Look, I mean, I think the challenge is the 25th Amendment is not designed for this purpose, right? It is designed for a president who's unable to execute the office of the president. Donald Trump is able to execute the office of the president. He just does it in a way that is disastrously bad for this country and disastrously bad for the Republican Party and disastrously bad for every person in this country. Um, and so uh, the remedy for that is not 25th Amendment. The remedy for that is removal by impeachment, right? The Democrats control the House. Nancy Pelosi is the speaker. It is ridiculous that she didn't convene the House over the weekend and bring them back and have them vote. And there have been claims that, oh, she couldn't without unanimous consent. Fine, we're here Monday. And instead of convening the House and voting articles of impeachment today, we know what the crime is. There doesn't need to be any sort of any sort of committee hearing or assessment. We all know what happened. We all know the fact, right? We can hold a vote today. Instead, she's going to hold a vote on some resolution to call for the president to resign as if that's a thing. Call for the 25th Amendment because it's not her responsibility to do her job. And then and then the claim is, oh, well, you know, we're not sure Republicans in the Senate will vote for it. Well, guess what? Not your thing to worry about. You control the House. You control the Rules Committee. Vote on impeachment today if that's what you think is necessary, which, by the way, is what is necessary. Send to the Senate. Let them hold their trial or hold their vote. And let them do their job. But do your part. Don't, don't you know, you know, monkey around here. And then finally, she sent, she trotted out Majority Whip uh, Clyburn out over the weekend to say, well, we might not even send it 
for another 100 days to send it. I mean, that is ridiculous. Who votes on articles of impeachment and then waits 100 days to send them? I mean, that's nonsense. Complete and utter ridiculousness. It's a complete travesty. She's the leader of the House of Representatives. Do your job, Speaker Pelosi. Lauren, uh, social media companies have banned President Trump from their platforms. Twitter gave him a lifetime ban. Obviously, that's huge. He's been doing a lot of communicating through Twitter. Uh, do you see any downside to what's going on on social media, this this move against Trump and his supporters? And, and I'd also point out that um, some of the big tech companies have banned Parler, the more right-wing version of Twitter uh, from their from their platforms and their and their cloud space. What do you, what's your take on the long-term implications there? I think there's a lot of potential for this move to have a lot of different unintended consequences that we haven't necessarily thought through yet. I think that on the surface of it, right now, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you view something as an immediate threat, which clearly this has proven to be, then you take action on it as a private company to the extent that you are able. And as much as we like to think that Twitter and Facebook and all the others control free speech in this country, they are still at the end of the day, private companies with a platform and terms of service that every user agrees to when they sign up for those platforms. And I think there are a lot of very clear violations of those terms of service that have taken place in the last week or potentially longer. Um, you know, lots of folks think this is something that should have happened a long time ago. Um, so I, I don't think it's a decision that has been made lightly. Um, I think it is good for us that this particular decision is impacting the accounts that it is impacting now and the users that it is impacting now, because I think it does limit the ability to quickly allow the snowball to progress in a more violent way. You know, disrupting lines of communication is sort of the first step. Um, I think that long term, it'll be interesting to see what the platforms do with other accounts with other users from around the world who are also using those accounts to incite violence against specific groups, how far are they willing to take this? Um, I think that's going to be a, a question that we will ask now and continue asking later on. Is this something, you know, if, a, if another government figure or another leader in another country is using the platform to incite violence against a specific group in their country or elsewhere, does that come down? Um, do they face the same consequences? I think the challenge for these platforms is going to be implementing this in a way that is seen as consistent across the board. So I think those are the, the long-term implications. You know, is it free speech? No. I'm not worried about this being a, a free speech challenge. You know, the government isn't punishing or clamping down on anybody for their opinions. Um, if anything, that's the, <laughs> that's the, the, the challenge they're agreeing with them at the time. Um, so I think a lot of what we're seeing with the different platforms, um, you know, Twitter in particular, as it moves so quickly through so many places uh, around the world, seeing what they choose to do going forward and how they apply this is something that's that's going to be really interesting to watch. Jody, what do you uh, what's your what's your take? This this is going to bleed over into foreign policy, national security in about two seconds as uh, as these companies are forced to apply these standards or, or are going to be compelled to apply these standards to, to foreign governments and other actors? What's if your, they are what's new standards as opposed to a one-off act, I think that's yeah. an initial question that as companies are going to have to answer. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it's, hard to, it's a little hard to read this right now, right? There's a, obviously like a, a reckoning that's going on uh, amongst these companies who I presume are terrified of one being held liable 
uh, and two of, of losing, you know, losing customers, right? These are profit-making uh, entities. Um, I will say that I took note over the weekend that Twitter deleted a post from China's embassy right here in Washington uh, that claimed that Uyghur women had had their minds emancipated by their policies in Xinjiang, right? Um, obviously, like for me, like, great. Yeah, I think that's a great step for them to have taken, but it was surprising uh, for them, uh, it was surprising to see Twitter do that, to take that type of uh, political step, particularly, uh, this isn't, you know, just like some, some little country, right? This is uh, a tweet that they deleted by the government, from the government of China, right, through their, through their embassy. I think it's really interesting. I don't know, I'd like to think that we're on the cusp of serious uh, thinking by these companies as to how they want their platforms to be utilized. That, I'm not. I'm not fully convinced that it isn't about their market, but we'll see. Jamil, I want to ask you about Ashley Babbitt, the the young woman who was killed during the insurrection on Wednesday. She had been part of the protest and part of the invasion of the Capitol, and and she was shot and killed. And there was a, there was a story in the Washington Post over the weekend about her life story. And uh, I presume it was well reported and researched and uh, fact checked and all that. And it tells an amazing story about QAnon and kind of her radicalization over time uh, toward that, that culminated in this in this terrible event. How do you connect what happened last week with domestic terrorism concerns? And how should our national security apparatus, the FBI, even our intelligence agencies respond to this this new, relatively new threat? Yeah, I mean, look, I think less it's hard. I think it actually connects back to the social media issue. So I want to talk about that for a second before I get to Ashley Babbitt. You know, on the social media front, I think, you know, typically our view in America today uh, or has historically has been um, that if you if you don't like a certain kind of speech, uh, the response is not to shut that speech down, but instead to speak against it and amplify voices on the other side of that speech. And so, you know, while there's no First Amendment issue uh, when it comes to a private party deciding whether or not to have somebody on their platform or allow them to speak, I think certainly, you know, it has allowed uh, this decision by Twitter uh, and the like, and, and now Apple with Parler, um, has, has allowed conservatives to change the debate from Donald Trump and his behavior um, and what happened at the Capitol uh, to this conversation about social media and suppression of conservative voices. Now, the two are not relevant conversations to one another, but they've allowed the thing to get monkeyed up. And and honestly, I think the better play for Twitter and these other platforms would have been simply to continue to do what they were doing before, uh, which is to continue labeling the speech. Uh, to the extent something is incitement, right, or might be viewed as that, that's a different story. But to entirely shut down the entire account um, and to and, and, and the like and to take parlor off the app store, I just don't think that is uh, the right approach. We're not talking about uh, Daily Stormer. And even in the case of Daily Stormer, right, um, there are arguments for um, for uh, that speech, at least in a public space, uh, being permitted. We we saw the the Nazi marching in Skokie case again. A lot of us uh, are appalled and 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 completely uh, would never want Nazis to march on the street in our town and would be opposed to it. Um, but the Supreme Court has talked about the importance of that speech. And again, to be clear, First Amendment doesn't apply to Twitter and these these private companies. But it is relevant to the larger discussion about uh, conservatives and, and, and voices being suppressed and the like. And it doesn't help us with clarity on the issue of dealing with what happened in the Capitol and dealing with Donald Trump himself when we allow this whole thing to continue uh, with Twitter and, 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 and distract us from the conversation. So I, I worry about that problem. Now, when it comes to Ashley Babbitt, right, again, a very tough question because you have, you have here a, a military veteran um, who served for a long time who obviously was radicalized um, or 
uh, or convinced of these conspiracy theories uh, over the internet. Um, and, and, and the question becomes, how do you identify these people and take action against them? We have the same problem when it comes to ISIS and its efforts to radicalize Americans. Uh, we know that the FBI has had a number of investigations of Americans who are being radicalized by ISIS using uh, the internet and using uh, communications methodologies. Uh, and, and I think that's a real challenge. And how do you connect that surveillance in a way that is, uh, and ensure that you're identifying these people and, and stopping them. And it gets even harder when it's about domestic terrorism um, and threats to the country emanating from within, uh, because you, what you don't want is investigations like we had back in the 60s of people like Joan Baez and Martin Luther King and the like, even though uh, their claim on the table at the time was they had connections to the Communist Party and to the Russians and the like. And so how do you find that middle ground? Uh, and it's a very tough one. Um, I don't know that I have a lot of easy answers, to be honest with you, Les. I think the at least one answer is uh, to the extent that there's a foreign tie, that's easy, right? We can eat, if there's a foreign tie, that gives us a hook to do the surveillance. If it's a domestic terrorism issue, right, you need typically a Fourth Amendment warrant. You need probable cause. And a lot of times in the early development of these investigations, you don't have that kind of probable cause to conduct the kind of surveillance you need to. And that becomes very, very challenging. And I'm not sure I have uh, easy answers on that. Lauren. I think one thing that's interesting, just as a quick little note in the um the instance of Ashley Babbitt is that, yes, you know, we can, setting aside the whole conversation around, do we talk about her as a victim? Do we talk about her as a terrorist? Do we talk about her as a veteran? You know, what the words set that aside, there is actually a years long documented effort that has shown that our veterans communities are specifically being targeted by right-wing extremist groups as a particularly vulnerable population to that type of propaganda. And it's something that the Russians have used to infiltrate that particular population and increase divisions. And uh, the VVA, the Vietnam Veterans of America, have done a lot of very extensive work for a very long time documenting these examples. It's worth looking at what they've seen. Um, There's a veteran named Chris Goldsmith who has been leading that effort and uncovered some really shocking things if that's just not something that you've dug into before. Um, But I I would recommend everybody look at that work that they've done, uh, because that's a population that is being targeted with very little resistance and pushback from outside forces who are able to potentially help and intervene. Um, And it's just not something that has been been taken seriously and been um, worked on. Jody, you know, the the QAnon conspiracy theory, uh, I believe, began after uh, the 2016 election and after Trump took office, it was early 2017. Uh, it's only it's only four years old. It's hard to imagine how a foreign power could have done a better job of undermining our democracy and our uh, our our polity, our our political discourse between each other than by perhaps promoting this conspiracy theory. And I, I have no evidence or anything that it was a foreign power that did it. But but that possibility alone has to be of enormous concern to the national security community. What's your what's your what's your take on how this may have revealed a, a vulnerability of ours? Well, I think you put your finger on it, Les. It's not uh, that a foreign state like China or Russia has to actually create you know, these entities. All they have to do is exploit them, right? So they can exploit uh, the conspiracy theories. Um, they can exploit the feeling of disenfranchisement um, and, and, and use that to their advantage to split us apart. I was reading... Uh, you know, uh, doom scrolling on Facebook, uh, last night as we, as we now, as we now do. And I was looking at a post from somebody who's the spouse of another friend who had posted something about Trump. 
And the responses she got from people were a number of people responded and said, you know, what about the deep state? Don't you know about the deep state? And I was like, the deep state? Like, like, is that really, you know, something that people believe? And the thing is, it is, right? Like, for those of us living here in Washington, it seems absolutely ridiculous because we know the government actually isn't that organized. <laughs> Certainly not organized enough to have a deep state. We couldn't even defend our capital last week. Like, you don't think if there was a deep state, we would have been better prepared for what had happened last week? Like, the whole idea is silly. But for people who who don't know better, who are far from Washington, who are spending lots of time at night doom scrolling like like we all do. It's a very easy to buy into these narratives and it's incredibly easy for foreign states to exploit them. Right. It doesn't cost very much money. Right. They can they can push their stuff out. It's cheap. Uh, it's easy. And what a better way than to get the country to attack itself. Jamil. You know, I also wonder less uh, as Jody and, and Lauren were talking, I wonder about uh, the challenge presented by members of Congress like Lauren Boebert from Colorado, um, who tweeted on the morning of January 6th that today is 1776, which was a common theme circulating QAnon circles, as well as uh, amongst the protesters and the and the people, the rioters and the, and the, the domestic terrorists who attacked the Capitol. Um, and I wonder what we do about members of Congress like that. I mean, she's been elected to office. Um, she's there, but she's clearly, she clearly believes that now is the time for a rebellion against the British aren't here, so presumably against the current U.S. government, um, which under the 14th Amendment is removable. Uh, it makes her removable from office. I mean, you cannot hold an office of props or trust in the United States because of uh, the the Civil War, 14th Amendment, uh, if you espouse insurrection. And I'm not sure what today's 1776 means other than that. So I, I really worry about that. aspect. A lot of people are talking about, oh, you know, we need to remove Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, what about put aside sort of the, the debate over the election, just focus on what happened on January 6th. I worry and wonder about Laura Boebert and what we think about that. Grant, what question am I not asking? So crises like this are often calls to action. In World War II, 16 million Americans served in Europe and the Pacific. The 60s saw a generation gain their voice through the civil rights and anti-war movements. After Hurricane Katrina and Sandy, people flocked to disaster sites to rebuild and gave blood in record numbers. Where should this generation race to fix the problems of today? Boy, there's, there's a great question. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you my, my reaction, uh, Grant, which is I don't think it's ever been more important that uh, people of goodwill and of integrity seek public office. Uh, that you know, having good public servants, folks who are, are committed to the American enterprise, and who understand our, our constitutional norms has never been more important than it is now. And that, that means folks who, who have that view may need to make personal sacrifices to, to serve their country, either give up a job that, that would pay them a lot more money uh, or foreclose other opportunities for family or other things and, and be willing to serve. And I think uh, that, that has always been true for us. It's more true now than ever. The best antidote to kind of the con artistry that we've seen for the last few years is for, for people of integrity to step up. And I don't, I don't really care what party they're from or what their ideological viewpoint is at a certain point. They need to be committed to the American constitutional government and be willing to serve and try to do the right thing and be willing to be there in the room and try to make a tough decision 
uh, when when it's called for and find compromise and and know when to stand on principle, when to compromise and go through that process on a regular basis and, and be willing to do that. That's that's I think is is the call for this next generation. And, I, and I'm I'm hopeful uh, the the young people today are uh, are terrific. They're diverse. They appreciate each other. They've got an understanding of human nature that I think is sophisticated and um, uh, and appropriate. And so I'm I'm I am optimistic, even if I think the current situation that we're in is going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. I am in the long run opt- optimistic. Who else? I might just say something briefly, uh, Les. I, I wholly agree with you, and I would just note that that doesn't have to be like you don't have to run for Congress, right? Like you can run for your county council or your school board, right? It's about being involved. Uh, in civic life. It doesn't have to mean um, running for national uh, office. Uh, The other, uh, you know, I think another really significant item that I've been thinking about a lot lately is disparities in in education um, and access uh, to success, right? So maybe for me, because I've I've got kids that are at that age, right? Like they're starting to prepare for college and I'm thinking about how much money uh, I'm personally putting into into tutoring. I've got a math tutor and a chem tutor and a uh, math ACT tutor and a and a reading ACT tutor. Right, like we're spending you know tons of money on supporting our kids. Yeah, Lauren, looking very concerned here. Right, like we're spending tons of money. I'm trying to get a first uh, for, grader through virtual school. That's it. You're you're freaking me out now. Yeah. It gets worse. Yeah. Right. So like. Between my three kids, I don't know, we've got maybe five or six different different tutors in order for them to be successful, uh, be successful. Um, and honestly, it's just, it's like not fair, right? Like the, the system isn't working for everybody equally. And I do think we really need to spend some time thinking about, you're never going to make it perfectly equal, but how you make it more accessible uh, for everybody. Uh, because until you address some of those disparities in access, disparities in opportunity, I think you're going to continue to see more division in the country. Lauren. So going back to Grant's question a little bit, I I take a small issue with the premise. I think that those were very good examples of moments of national unity that led to specific calls to action. You know, right now with what's going on in the country, me giving blood isn't exactly a solution. Me giving blood with the 10,000 of my closest friends isn't exactly a solution. Um, I think that the defining characteristic in those examples are the fact that each one of them had a tangible enemy. Each one of them had a tangible threat that was presenting itself to a unified version of us. And I'm getting tired of the word unity and unified and as squishy and ridiculous as it is. And the next person who says it is, is going to find my wrath later today. But the idea that in Katrina, there was a storm, it hurt people, let's fix people. Let's be better the next time a storm comes. It's something that is predictable and manageable and fixable. The challenge that we have right now is that the quote unquote threat, whatever we want to view, you know, I'm, I'm still hesitant to use the word enemy, but we're, we're getting more and more into that territory. But the threat that is out there in my mind is still fairly intangible. It's, it's ideological rather than physical and tangible and something that we can very easily 
all come together and push back against. And I think that if you view it from that perspective, how do we prevent this ideology from elevating itself throughout all parts of our lives before it eventually takes over, you know, despite its efforts to try and take over Wednesday? So I think that the call to action for people is I love the idea of public service and doing something to take your energy, your resources, whatever it is that you have that you can give and put it towards something that benefits this idea of America, that benefits this thing we are trying to protect, no matter how you define it, no matter how you exist in it, what can you do to make sure it isn't being changed and that it is in a bad way? You know, obviously we, we change, we evolve. That's part of the beauty of what we do, but to me, it come, the call to action is something as small as don't just sit there and roll your eyes the next time your neighbor starts randomly spouting off racist BS at the bus stop waiting for your kids. Like, don't just pretend like you didn't hear it or kind of, you know, smile and nod to avoid a confrontation. It's actually speaking up. It's actually saying, nope, that doesn't work for me. I'm not willing to listen to that anymore. And it's, it's keeping those things from growing, whatever it takes to keep that moment and that, that instant interaction, that thought from ballooning and taking over more of our space. It's basically someone lifted up a rock several years ago and all these things crawled out from under it. And everyone said, Oh, look at these neat little things. And then they all started multiplying and they're everywhere. We need to slowly start taking those things that are the ugly, ugly side and dealing with them, acknowledging them, but saying, you know what, you don't have a place here. You don't have a place in a strong civil society that promotes democracy and all these things that we are not perfect at, but that we constantly are striving to be more perfect at. If you are opposed to that, you need to go slowly back under your rock and stay there because you don't have a place here. And I think limiting the places and the spaces that those ideas are allowed to exist without confrontation would go a very long way towards pushing back against the threat that we face today. Camille, let's do a a quick tour to horizon of uh, foreign policy challenges as they may relate to the events of last week. Uh, It would seem that our adversaries around the world, and we do, we do have adversaries are, are taking advantage of the situation. What's your take on, on Iran and, and how they're, they may be exploiting this, this opportunity that we have just handed them? Yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously, uh, less uh, the situation here <clears throat> that took place last week um, causes all sorts of trouble with our enemies abroad. Uh, there is no question in my mind uh, that after, during and after the events uh, of uh, January 6th, uh, we have seen, we would see uh, vodka glasses clinking in, in Moscow, um, uh, toasts in Beijing and Pyongyang and Tehran. Um, and, and these adversaries are already moving to take advantage of it, right? They are uh, making clear that they will uh, not concede to American uh, views on their regions. Uh, they are, uh, they are you know, expressing sympathy for, uh, for our country and the like, as if uh, they have a, a basis uh, to make that assertion, right? Uh, we've seen the repression um, already taking place in Hong Kong uh, by the Chinese, an ongoing continuation of that. It makes it harder for us to uh, to do what we need to do. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's a CIA officer over the weekend, um, and, and he said very candidly to me, you know, this makes it a lot harder for me to do my job. It is harder for me to recruit sources. 
It is harder for me to advocate for uh, American policies. It is harder for me to uh, encourage people uh, towards democracy and freedom um, and, the, and the views of the United States when you have Americans conducting insurrection at the request of the President of the United States in the Capitol. Um, and, uh, and, and, that's, and that, in, in a lot of ways, is one of the most challenging things. It's hard for CIA officers. It's hard for our foreign diplomats. It's hard for our entire foreign policy structure. And it's hard to effectuate America's goals in the world. We will recover from this. We will get better. It's getting involved even in politics. It's, it's, it's learning about our system of government um, and understanding how it's supposed to work. Um, and how it ought to work, and that and that riots at the Capitol and, and and armed combat in the halls of Congress are not the way to achieve our goals. That's not what we do in this country. Um, I think that's the heart of it. And I think at the end of the day, American foreign policy and national security will recover. Um, but it's taken a beating. It's taken a beating in the last uh, you know whatever it is, 128 hours since those events. And it's it's continues to take a beating, by the way, because not enough of our politicians, Republicans and Democrats alike, are standing up and saying we must do the right thing here. We must, we must take action now. And again, I blame Republicans and Democrats equally on this, right? Republicans should have canceled this cancer years ago, right? When, when, when Donald Trump said John McCain wasn't a war hero, right? That should have been the sign right there that the game was up on him. And we failed and we continue to fail again and again, whether it was Charlottesville or, or, or the protest or his ridiculous holding the Bible in front of St. John's Church. I mean, there have, been, there have been moment upon moment for Republicans to stand up against Donald Trump they should have done it. Uh, there were a lot of us that signed that letter back in, in, in uh, 2016 proudly, um, and more should have done that, more should have done more since then. Uh, but, but it's also on Democrats, right? It is, not, it is not helpful when the Speaker talks about impeachment and resignation and 25th Amendment and does nothing in her own power to take action, and then is kowtowing to apparently the, the, pre the president-elect who's saying, well, give me 100 days to do my, do my thing. I mean, come on, people. Take some responsibility. Who are the adults in the room if not you? Jody, let's talk about uh, about China and Taiwan. You mentioned China earlier and uh, the tweet from the embassy uh, that got taken down by, by Twitter. Uh, Secretary Pompeo announced some changes to the way the U.S. is approaching Taiwan, making it more, um, uh, more of a, a real diplomatic relationship between two countries. What's, what's your sense on how Beijing is, is going to handle that challenge in the context of what happened last week? Right. So this thing with Taiwan is a very is a very big deal. Right. So the U.S. hasn't had official diplomatic relations with Taiwan since 1979. Right. Uh, following the enactment of the Taiwan Relations Act. Right. This is this law that provides this kind of unique basis for the Taiwan relationship with us. Uh, recognizing, you know, a sense of recognizing Taiwan as being part uh, of China and under the Reagan's six concerns of pledging that we would only have unofficial relations uh, with Taiwan. So, you know, this is actually the culmination, I think, of, of many years of actions during the course of this administration, where we are now at Pompeo announced last week uh, that he's undoing the years of protocol, if you will, that prevented U.S. officials from traveling to Taiwan and announced that uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Kelly Craft is going to visit um, visit Taiwan uh, this week. So this is a huge deal. I'm not, not I'm not sure how China is going to respond. Right? I really saw this as an American response to what happened uh, last Wednesday in in Hong Kong. Right? So well, the assault on the Capitol was happening uh, here in Washington. Um, they were arresting 53 democracy activists for subversion under draconian national security law uh, in Hong Kong, right? So I think we've seen a, a kind 
have a growth in Chinese aggression at home in Hong Kong, in its near abroad, and frankly, internationally. And uh, this is one way to put a to put a nail on that, which is to say, you know what? Like we saw what happened in Hong Kong. The United States has always stood by Taiwan. I think they'll find support for that on Capitol Hill, which has always been a stronger advocate uh, than the executive branch for a closer relationship uh, with the island. And I think I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad this came this came now. I think it'll make it easier. Uh, for the Biden administration to carry forward with that policy if they if they if they choose to do so, and I think it, frankly it's like a real message to China like enough of the BS like we're done like we're going to stand with our democratic friends and allies that's it. Lauren, uh, last week on Tuesday I believe, which uh, was only six days ago, which was the the Georgian runoff election, hard to believe it was only six days ago. Uh, which, of course, flipped the Senate from Republican control to Democratic control. Uh, China uh, uh, enacted its greatest crackdown yet on Hong Kong. It arrested 50 democracy activists, uh, an amazing uh, event that clearly they timed with uh, American politi- the American political calendar to, to dodge uh, a lot of opprobrium internationally. It only got better for China on Wednesday when the when the insurrection happened and uh, 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 people were killed in the Capitol building. What's your sense on on how last week has has really been bad news for for Hong Kong? Well, I think the arrests in of themselves, as as Joe was saying, the crackdown, um, you know, under the guise of in, enforcing the new national security law, is is something that is a huge hit to the pro democracy movement in Hong Kong. It's something that is going to have a lasting impact. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure those aren't 50, what was it? 53, 52, 53, something like that. 50 ish. We're not going to see 50 ish open trials with evidence presented and witnesses called to see who ends up going to prison. And that's not, that's just not what's going to happen. I think the, the movement there has taken a big hit when you have so many leaders that are just suddenly swept up and swept off um, and I think the timing by China, I, <laughs> I don't think they could have planned it better if they tried. When, when we say they're taking advantage, you know, of the current moment, that was like three current moments ago. Like they, you know, six days, six lifetimes ago of chaos in the United States when our attention is focused elsewhere. And I think that it's a, it's a culmination of seeing that there isn't going to be pushback. There isn't going to be a consequence. There isn't going to be some type of giant diplomatic hammer that falls down when it happens. Um, And it's just, it's been building up to this moment to suddenly have this large group of, you know, pro-democracy leaders just swept up off the streets um, in such a a wide reaching way. Um, I think that, it probably worked out even better than they thought because, you know, we didn't get through the election. We didn't get through the certification vote and then push back because now we're still dealing with everything else that came in the, you know, four giant catastrophic events that have occurred here since then. Um, So I think that as Hong Kong looks to what's going to come next, a lot of it's going to depend on what the rest of the international democratic community is able to do 
um, you know, in, including the U.S., including the, the new administration coming in or, or anyone else? Is there enough bandwidth to be able to be effective in pushing back against that? And whether or not that just gives China enough permission to continue taking additional steps in the future. I think that's something that remains to be seen. We're still in such a period of dealing with the fallout of what happened here last week that the implications, you know, second and third order effects of what we now don't have the ability to deal with elsewhere because we're so focused here. This is just one of those examples. All right, let's go to the uh, the final topic, uh, and we'll each discuss an issue we're following. It's not necessarily in the headlines. Grant, lead us off. So this week, I'm following water politics. This weekend, talks broke down regarding the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. This dam purports to meet the power needs of 110 million people and reduce poverty rates in Ethiopia. But Egypt and Sudan fear that the reduced flow of the Nile River will cripple irrigation systems and reduce the availability of drinking water. China just announced that they have have reduced the flow of the Mekong River by 50%, but observers are saying that this reduction happened days ago without warning. This will wreak havoc in Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam, or downstream of China. As climate change continues to elongate droughts and make weather patterns more unpredictable, we can expect these water politics to become more volatile and potentially violent. Grant, we may change your podcast name to Aquaman. Okay, Jamil, what are you following? Celeste, I'm following the uh, designation of the Houthi uh, rebels in uh, Yemen as a foreign terrorist organization by the State Department happened over this weekend. Um, Obviously, uh, a big change in U.S. policy. Uh, We've known about this issue with the Houthis for years and years and years. Uh, The the fight has been going on for quite a while. We've also known that they've been supported by uh, the Iranians and specifically the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that's good support. Uh, there's little question, I think, amongst those who uh, follow this issue that the Houthis are uh, essentially or have become uh, a Iranian proxy force. So not a surprising change, uh, kind of surprising it's taken this long to get there, to be honest with you. Um, and also coming at a time when, um, when there's an effort uh, in the region to try and figure out how to solve the Yemen problem. Uh, not sure uh, how much more difficult or, or different that makes this, uh, uh, that this, that this designation uh, makes that. Uh, but I think it does add uh, some a, a new dynamic uh, to the situation in Yemen and our efforts to resolve it. And I think we'll, we'll probably complicate uh, President Biden and his team's effort to address this issue. Uh, the Saudis have been asking for this for quite a while, um, and now they've gotten what they want um, on the way out the door for this administration. So we'll see how this plays out. Uh, look, the Houthis are, are, are bad news. Uh, the Iranian uh, uh, activities in the region, including their support of the Houthi rebels, are, are not good for American interests. Um, at the same time, it's surprising that this has come this late in the game. So keep an eye on that story. Uh, more to develop, particularly as uh, the new president comes in office. It's very hard to undo an FTO designation. Not not hard operationally, uh, but hard politically to undo an FTO designation once uh, once assigned. One of, one of the concerns with that is going to be the humanitarian response. Uh, Yemen's got the greatest need in the world. Uh, half the population's at risk of malnutrition, starvation, and death. And um, uh, we got to make sure that whatever we do there doesn't lead to uh, unintended consequences in that regard. Jody, what are you following? So I'm going to get to Uganda, but I just want to say, you know, reflecting back on our conversation today a little bit, right, and what we just talked about with respect to China, I think it's important to contrast those things, right? What's happening in China, what happened in Hong Kong. Uh, here in the United States, the judicial and legislative branches, in fact, in fact checked an effort by the executive to undo an election. 
And this is how, how our system was intended to work. We just never thought it, it would have to, right? So for me, that's a good pivot into the upcoming elections this week in Uganda, right? So the elections are Thursday and we have this guy, Bobby Wise, who's a pop star turned politician, just 38 years old, who may possibly unseat uh, Yoweri Museveni, who has been president there since 1986, right? So Wine is uh, young, his base is young. Uh, they call him the ghetto president, and he's really the face of a movement for change uh, in Uganda. And I think he more than that understands that the movement isn't just about him, it's about what he about what he represents. So before he became a politician, he was like said a pop star and he was think, singing about things like access to healthcare and education uh, and to Grant Point, clean water uh, and justice. Um, if he wins uh, this week, uh, if the system allows him to win uh, this week, it would be the first peaceful transfer of power in Uganda's uh, in Uganda's history, it would be a really monumental uh, event if it happens. There are a lot of forces uh, within that system that might prevent it. Uh, in addition to just violence, whether or not you know um, whether or not the ruling party would uh, would allow that uh, will allow that to play out, we'll see. Um, but it would be a really consequential election, not just for Uganda but for for the African continent if it if it happens. So uh, like the rest of you, I get a daily email about uh, events in the world and things that are of a security concern, and it goes, and it goes country by country. And this email lists the, the places that are under the greatest emergency first and to highlight places uh, where, where there could be difficulties and, uh, and violence and that kind of thing. And this morning, uh, the first country listed, and this has a, uh, a rating of five, which is the highest rating. And it says, post-election insecurity and unrest likely to persist through January. Post-election insecurity, including related opposition unrest, is likely to persist through January following the legislative and presidential elections of last year. Now, it's describing Central African Republic, which is one of the least stable countries in, in all of Sub-Saharan Africa, but it could just as easily be describing our country. And I think it's a nice little reminder that uh, no matter where you're from, we're all the same. Uh, and and the veneer that we put over human nature is is thin at best, and we need to uh, we need to take good care of it. Uh, Lauren, bring us home. The issue I'm following, um, aside from what we've talked about here today, isn't one. This I think this is all consuming. I think this is so significant and so important to the way that we function and the way that we have the ability to even deal with any of the issues elsewhere going forward, that this is what is taking my attention right now. And I would hope a lot of other people's as well. Um, Yes, the rest of the world is still moving on and still taking actions and still holding elections and still cracking down on dissent and all those things that the United States in our position as a strong democracy is able to participate and push back on and help with. And right now, I think our ability to do that successfully going forward is in jeopardy. And I think that unless we get this right, it won't matter what we think about anything else because nobody's going to care what we think about anything else. Um, so right now, this, this is where I am. All right. That's a wrap.
As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Monson for hosting. And Grant Haver for being our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. <laughs>